Uh, if you have your Bible, open to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5 is where we're going to be spending our time this morning. We're continuing along in our series, Leave Your Mark. But today I'm going to take a little bit different approach than how I have been doing it. Uh, You know, I've been uh, putting a quote in there about Jesus marks, and then I've been putting how Jesus left his mark and how we leave our mark, and then I've got question marks at the end. Today I'm not going to to do it that way. I'm going to kind of detour off that a little bit. But what I really want to do is to share from my heart about why it is... um, that I do what I do. Uh, and I want to do this from this passage in Mark chapter 5, which is uh, a, a text that has been shaping my ministry for nearly 20 years. And as you see, I've got kind of a funny title this morning, uh, A Theology of Ministry. You know, what I believe God says to me about ministry. And this is not, you know, what what I think I should be doing. This is all driven from, from Jesus. And so I've been looking forward to this text since I started this series. And I knew that I would probably do this one just a little bit differently. So that's what I want to do is I want to, uh, to do it. We're not going to spend a tremendous amount of time in the text. We want to talk about, I'm going to share with you what the text actually means uh, to me in a, uh, in a very, very personal way. Well, you've heard me tell the story, or many of you have heard me tell the story, that my call to ministry began in the spring of 1990 when I was in the seventh grade. And I entered into ministry in 1994 when I was only 18 years old. And other than working a a part-time job here or there between, between ministries, that's pretty much all I have done. Uh, as a matter of fact, it just dawned on me the other day that uh, this month, August, this is my 25th year of ministry. That kind of snuck up on me. I didn't realize that it had been that long that I have been doing this. Uh, and so what I want to do today is talk about what, what drives us. What drives us to do the things that we do? Like I said, in seventh grade, I felt God's call. But as a seventh grader, I can assure you there's no way possible that I could articulate that. Uh, I just knew that, hey, this ministry thing sounds like a good idea. And I kind of feel like God is kind of leading me in that direction. So that's what we're asking. Why is it we do what it is that we do? Our church has probably in its largest demographic of careers, uh, teachers and retired teachers. And we have, we have several. Who, is, who has been or is a teacher just that's left in the room right now? So look around. We've got several. There's some in the back uh, as well. We've got a, a large number of, of, of teachers and retired teachers. And so why is it you become a teacher? Because you have the ability that God has gifted you, the ability to, to give knowledge in a way that, that helps students, that, that educates them, that helps them to, to understand. Because you realize that it is, it is an avenue for you to, to change lives. Because you value education and because you love 
kids and you love seeing their, their eyes light up as, they, as the light bulbs come on, as they see the light, so to speak. And so maybe that's why it is you do what you do. But we also have a, a number of people that work in the, in the health care field as well or have at one time. We have, we have nurses. And so why is it that nurses do what they do? Well, I think probably one of the main reasons is they enjoy helping people, right? And they don't mind the stuff that comes along with nursing because it's not an easy job. Okay, if you've ever been tended to by a nurse, which is probably everybody, then you know it can be absolutely, at times, disgusting, the work that they do. And of course, if you're not good with blood and you're not good with bodily fluids and functions and all this other stuff, it is absolutely, you know, you you don't want to do that job. But there are certain people that God has has gifted with that ability, right? And it's a, it's not just an ability that I would guess that's probably a calling to do that kind of work, just like teaching is. Okay. You, you, you're not turned away by those things and you see that what matters most is getting help to those that are in need. And so they're willing to literally wade into some stuff in order to show love and compassion and, and, and healing touch to those that need it. We've got a number of people that are involved in IT, computers, those kinds of things. And I'm guessing the reason they do why they do is because they have an ability to understand things and fix things that the rest of us do not have. Okay, that's why we have helplines for those of us that think we can fix it, try to make it worse, and then have a number to call. Okay, and we call and they help us and they say, no, you shouldn't have done that. You should have done this. And sometimes it's so bad that we have to turn over, you know, control of our screen to them so they can undo the stuff we've done. Okay, but it's because God has given them that ability, that understanding to to read and to, to write code, to fix problems and to help. And, you know, we live in a world that cannot get by without computers. Okay, and if you have a world that is dependent on that, then you must have technology, right? Okay, we have, I mean, our surgeons, the stuff that they deal with now, okay, it's all, you know, a lot of technology, okay? And they have to have people that know how to program that stuff, that know how to fix that stuff, because the last thing you want is a robot ripping something out that isn't supposed to come out. You know what I'm talking about? This guy does. We don't want that. And so that's why you have guys like John who go around and they educate. He's also a salesman, but he educates these doctors on you know, how to use these things, how to use this, this technology. Okay, but we also have sales people, people who just have that ability to understand products and to understand that there is a need for us to buy their products and they have persuasive abilities to convince us to buy the things that they are selling, whether we need them or not. But they can convince us that we do, and we can convince ourselves that we do. You know, God has given them that ability. So we're asking the question, why do we do what we do? As I began to gain more understanding, the uh, this is what God called me to, uh, was a little bit too simplistic. Then my mentor asked me one day, he says, you know, why is it you do what you do? And I, you know, I'm trying to give him some really nice 
theological answer about, uh, you know, it's real, real noble sounding. You know, I'm called to this. I'm called to preach. You know, I'm called to minister, to change lives. He goes, no, no, no. He says, this is why. This is why you do what you do. And he shared with me Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, which says the gifts he gave were that some would be apostles, some would be prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. And a lot of what I do kind of falls into that list right there. Okay, more like the lower end of the list, not the upper end of the list. But he said, this is why you do what you do, because God has gifted you in this way. God has called you this way. But here's the real reason. It's found in the next verse, to equip the saints for ministry. Okay, that's what all of those different people that God has called, that's their main goal. Okay, it is to equip the saints of ministry so that the body of Christ can be built up. And so for a long time, for a long time, this was my main theology of ministry. And of course, it's, I still believe it's a, a large part of why I do the things I do. But that was a, a theology of ministry that was given to me by, by someone else. Uh, I hadn't really had developed my own way of going about things. I hadn't developed my own understanding and theology of ministry. For years, Mark 5 has had a very powerful effect on me. I uh, have always been mesmerized by how Jesus ministers to both the great and the small, to the believing and the unbelieving, to the haves and to the, to the have-nots. And it's from this text that I began to develop my own theology of ministry. And so what I want to do now is not just read the entire text, but what I want to do is just kind of look at some of the highlights of it. It's, it's an incredible passage, as I pointed out last week. Jesus has been in, um, been in a, uh, a Gentile region where people do not believe, and he comes across the lake, and as soon as he gets out of the boat, he's encountered by this man who is demon-possessed, and the people have... You know, just put up with him. They, they, he, they can't control him, so they put him in chains and shackles, but he's broken those things because of just the, the power of possession that he is under. And he roams out among the tombs and he calls out in the night and he cuts himself with rocks and he's just this, this nuisance. Then Jesus shows up and you remember the guy recognizes, the guy being the, the demons driving, the guy recognizes Jesus. And there's this, this battle, this confrontation that takes place between Jesus and this demon. And we learn that it's not just one demon, but it's a legion of demons. It's, it's, it's thousands. Six thousand demons inhabiting this one man. Okay. And so he's, we begin to understand why he is absolutely tormented. And Jesus tells him to leave. They won't want to leave. And they, you know, they beg Jesus not to be sent out of the area. And he grants permission. He grants their request to go into this herd of pigs. And the pigs rush down the bank once the demons enter them. And they, they drown. Again, it leaves the demons just wandering in arid places once again. Well, the townspeople hear about it. They come out. They're kind of freaked out because they're more scared of this guy being freed from his demons than they were of you know, his previous condition. Because they recognize... As powerful as that guy was, this new guy has shown up is more powerful than those demons. And they are afraid of Jesus. Remember that? 
They're afraid and they ask him to leave. And so he granted their request. As he's getting in the boat to leave, the former demon-possessed man comes to Jesus and begs to go with him. And then that's the only request that Jesus turns down in the whole story. He says, no, you go and stay. They're afraid of me. They're not ready for me. You go tell everybody what it is I've done. And so he did, not only in his own hometown, but he went to the Decapolis, to the ten other surrounding cities, and he proclaimed the name of Jesus to a people that weren't quite ready to receive Jesus themselves. But God used this man and used his story to go and tell people, and it changed lives because of what Jesus did. Well, then you get to this part of Matthew, uh, excuse me, to Mark 5, where we are. And it says that Jesus crosses back over to the other side of the lake. And he gets out, and there is this synagogue ruler named Jairus. Now, organizationally, and I've said this before, organizationally, he and Jesus are not friends. Okay? Jesus is this rabbi, he's teaching and preaching with this new authority. The scribes, the religious leaders, they don't like it because it seems to be undermining them. It's just actually that they haven't interpreted the text correctly and they don't recognize who Jesus is and they don't recognize the full potential of of Jesus and the power of, of God's kingdom. But this guy comes running to Jesus and it says that he fell down at his feet. And that's two different things. Two different things that we want to point out. To go running in Jesus' day was a shameful thing. You did not run, okay? It was an embarrassment. It brought shame. You walked. If you were important, you didn't run, okay? But this guy is running, and then he drops to his knees, indicating a a position of extreme humility. Now, this is the religious leader. This is the guy who is in charge of the synagogue. Okay, he may not lead the service, but he makes sure the service goes as it's supposed to go. Okay, he conducts it. He makes sure that everything happens that is supposed to happen. That the texts are read, that the scroll is there, that the the synagogue is kept up how it is supposed to be kept. Okay, it is a position of prestige. And he comes running to Jesus and he falls at his knees. And it says that he begged him earnestly. He says, my little daughter is dying. Come and lay your hands on her so that she can get well and and live. So Jesus went with him. And it says that a large crowd followed. Okay, so you have this crowd that's following along. And they're they're really probably tagging along in hopes of of seeing this miracle. So they're making their way to Jairus' house. When the next character comes stumbling out of this crowd... And it's a woman who we really don't know anything about her. We don't know her name... We don't know what her background is or much about her background, at least her her biographical background. She comes stumbling out of the crowd. Verse 25 says that she was suffering from bleeding for 12 years. For 12 years, she has had this issue of blood, as as some versions call it. Uh, So she's been suffering for this long, for more than a decade. And in this culture, okay... This woman would be considered unclean, okay? And so, you know, we've, we've talked about this text before, that when during a woman's time of the month, she would become unclean during that period. She would leave the community. She'd leave where she lived. She'd have to go out of town and be there until she was clean again, 
Okay? And then she would come back in. Well, she went out and never got to come back. So for 12 years, she's isolated. She's cut off from her community. If she's got family, she's cut off from them. Likely she does. She's cut off from her friends, from her connections, from all of her people. She's completely cut off. Okay? But somehow or another, she's heard about Jesus. Perhaps other women, as they've come out and gone in, they've talked about this guy. This guy who heals people, who has raised the dead and who has opened deaf ears and has given sight back to the blind. This guy that, that you remember that demon we used to hear about? That demon-possessed guy that lived up on the other side of the lake? That guy has been freed of all that. Somehow or another, this woman has heard about Jesus, and so she gets into the crowd, which she's not supposed to do. She is there illegally, which could result in a pretty harsh punishment, maybe even up to death. And she thought to herself, if I can just touch his clothes, I'll be made well. Now that's faith, right? We have two instances of faith already. We have the faith of Jairus. His is driven by desperation because his daughter, who is 12 years old, is dying. And he's exhausted all his other options. The only thing he knows to do is to turn to Jesus. Maybe Jesus can help. So he goes to Jesus, humbles himself, asks for Jesus' help. Then you have this other, this woman, who has suffered for the same 12 years as Jairus has had with his daughter. Okay? And she is moved by faith as well. Her faith compels her into the crowd. Compels her to Jesus, thinking if I can just touch His robe. He doesn't have to speak. He doesn't have to say anything. He doesn't have to do anything. He doesn't even have to touch me. If I can just touch His robe, His clothes, I will be healed. And so she does that. And she sneaks up. She grabs His his garment. In verse 29, there's our word, instantly or immediately. Immediately her flow of blood ceased and she sensed in her body that she was healed. And then there's the word again. Immediately Jesus realized in himself that the power had gone out. And so he turns around and says, who touched my clothes? Now he's in a huge crowd of people and his disciples are saying, what do you mean who touched your clothes? Look at all of these people. It could have been anybody. Because we're walking along in this crowd and we're, you know, we're trying to get somewhere probably in a hurry and there's no way that we can know who touched your clothes. But Jesus knows it was more than just a common brushing. There's somebody bumping into him or elbowing him or, or, or swiping his, his robe accidentally. He has felt the power leave his body. He knows what has happened. And he says, who touched me? And the woman it says, and we're going to, I'm going to come back to this verse in a few minutes. But knowing what she did, with fear and trembling, she comes, she comes and she confesses everything. Confesses absolutely everything. It was me. I did it. Here's why. And I'm going to circle back to that in a few minutes. Jesus calls her something that he calls nobody else in Scripture. He calls her daughter. Okay? Her name has been unclean. Her name has been ostracized. Her name has been cut off. Her name is now daughter. By Jesus claiming her as daughter, he's saying, you are under my protection. Nobody can touch you. Nobody can do anything to you. You are mine. Daughter, go in faith. You have been cleansed. You have been freed, healed from your affliction. And we think, man, that's a great story, right? 
Because here's this woman who has suffered and now she's freed. But don't forget, we got Jairus over here who is desperate and is probably thinking, Jesus, we don't have time for this. My daughter's life is running out and we got to get there. Okay? And so the crowd comes and they say, hey, look, don't bother the teacher anymore. Your daughter is dead. Imagine what that moment must have been like for Jairus. You know, I I wonder about that. I wonder if he felt anger at the woman. Anger at Jesus for for not staying focused on what he was supposed to be doing. I don't know. We'll, We'll probably never know. But Jesus just looks at Jairus and says, Don't listen. Don't worry about it. Just believe. And so they make their way to, to Jairus's house. They get there. And he didn't let anybody come in except just a couple of his disciples. They brought him in. Everybody's weeping and wailing because that's what you do when somebody dies. And Jesus says, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead but asleep. And it says they laughed at him. And so Jesus put them all out of the room. It's just his people and the kid's parents. Then he goes over, verse 41, says, Then he took the child by the hand to help her and said, Talitha kum, which is translated, Little girl, I say to you, get up. Then here's our word again. Immediately, as soon as the words come out of Jesus' mouth, immediately the girl got up and began to walk. Notice what it says. She was how many years old? Twelve. The same 12 years that Jairus, the the same 12 years that that woman has suffered, Jairus has 12 years of joy and happiness with his daughter. Okay? She is immediately healed. It says they were utterly astounded. Then he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this, and they gave her something to eat. So Jesus is then back on his thing of don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. This is what, this is what happened. It's an absolutely incredible story. And you see the parallels. You see the, um, of, of the 12 years, of the two people suffering. But yet you also pe- see people who believe and people who don't believe. You see the haves, which is Jairus and his household, and the have-nots, this woman who has nothing except her suffering. And you see Jesus minister to the big ministry of Jairus, and yay, the crowd is behind it, so let's go do this, and it's going to be you know, just an incredible thing, and the crowd's going to rejoice to the little bitty ins- insignificant ministry of this woman whose name we don't even know. Okay? So you see Jesus ministering across the board in this text, and that's one of the reasons why this story has been so powerful and influential in my life, because it says to me, everybody needs Jesus. And Jesus cares about everybody. Okay? He cares about us all. So, now, what I want to try to do is to develop this theology of ministry a little bit. It's a little bit complex, and it's, it winds a little bit, but I hope that you'll bear with me. 
So I want to go all the way back to what I talked about just a few minutes ago, what I opened with, my, my seventh grade experience, my call, and really what this is, what I'm going to give to you now in four movements or four expansions, whatever you want to do, is my call to ministry, my understanding of what ministry is. And again, it's, it's all rooted, I think, in this text. I'm going to give you some other scriptures as well, but it's all anchored in this this story of Mark chapter 5. So move one was the initial call. It began in seventh grade, like I said. Okay, when I, And I felt like God was calling me into youth ministry. And so that's, that's what I did. I wanted to work with kids. I wanted to work with students. And so I began that in 1994 as a senior in high school. I would go to school for like three hours or four hours. I would leave on work exit and I would go and work at the church for the rest of the day. Okay, and then I would teach on Sunday morning and I would teach on Wednesday night and I got put in charge of of planning trips, which I had no experience and no no reason on earth why I should be leading trips. But that was given to me to do. Okay, and I was literally just kind of thrown into the deep end of the pool. All right. And so that was that was move one. And I did youth ministry primarily until 2008. And that takes me to, to movement two. Four years earlier, in 2004, I felt that God was expanding my call from the initial one into into preaching ministry. And so from the years of 2004 to 2008, I had lots of opportunities to preach. I actually served a small church uh, earlier in my ministry. But in 2004 to 2008, I served two different churches as their interim ministry for a period of probably about a year, year and a half all total, but what that was was a confirmation that this is what God was was calling me to. Okay, then move three happened in two thousand nine when I was able to fully embrace the call to preach, and that's when we moved to to Cornerstone. Okay, to be able to come here and to be able to preach uh, and, and do what. Okay, this is you know kind of it felt like okay this is what God has called me to do was to come here and preach. Well, then there's move four. And it's one that I've talked about a little bit, but not much. And so I want to kind of explain it further. And it is the move of, that involves chaplaincy. And it seems like it's, and it really is, it's the newest addition. But actually, it was something that was seeded in me in the fall of 2001, right after 9-11. Shortly after that, I felt like... You know, what I'd really like to do is become a a, a Navy chaplain. And so I started looking at what that would take to become that. And I called my father-in-law and absolutely freaked him out because I'm telling him that, hey, I'm thinking about joining the Navy to become a chaplain. And he's going, okay, you've been married to my daughter for like 10 minutes and you're fixing to go off to basic training and then you're going to have to go to school and then you're going to be stationed somewhere and she'll probably get to go with you. But what in the world are you thinking? And so after like four minutes of silence, he began to talk. He kind of got his wits about him. And the reason I called him, because he was in the Navy, and he kind of knew how it would work. And then he talked to me very candidly about it, about what I could expect and what I would be looking at and where I could go and the different things that it would take. And it was really a a very positive uh, conversation. And he actually said he would be supportive of that. Bethany said she would be supportive of that. And then I got to researching what it took to become a chaplain. And it takes more than just a desire to want to become a chaplain. 
Okay, it takes a lot more. And I started looking at the qualifications and I was going, yeah, this is not happening. This is not happening. I, I don't have, I don't have the credentials. I don't have the education. I don't have anything that I need. So, you know, I just kind of pushed that to the back of my mind. Um, but that idea of chaplaincy had always been with me uh, since then. Well, after my brother died in 2012, it sort of rekindled itself. But I knew I still didn't have the stuff that I needed. And so I told Tommy and George then that I was going to go back to school. And I was going to get things that I needed. And so that's what, what happened. And I went and I got everything that I needed um, so that I could answer this, this fourth call, which has been taking place over the, over the last year. So then, there's the, there's the movements of the expansion of what I believe God has called me to. Okay, so now then, now that you understand the, the what, I want to explain the why. And that's the better part, because that's about this. Okay, it begins, it begins first with an understanding of the resurrection. Okay, if you don't hear anything else that I say for the rest of the day, or maybe for the rest of the times you hear me talk, hear this right here. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most central belief held in all of Christianity. Okay? That's it. That's the absolute most important belief in all of Christendom. It's based on the resurrection. The reason we have hope is because of the resurrection. Okay? The reason why we don't have to be enslaved to sin is because of resurrection. The reason why we can have afflictions and suffering and pain and sickness and disease and still, and even death and not die without hope is all because of the resurrection, because of what Jesus did. And it is the only thing that sets apart all the other religions. Okay? Because you have the Savior, the God, the deity who died for His people. No other deity does that. Died for His people to break the chains of sin and then rises from the dead defeating everything else. Okay? So the resurrection is the most central thing. Okay? And so as a Christian, that's what I hope you will center your, your everything on. Okay? Paul in, uh, in, in 1 Corinthians, he's writing to them and he says, you know, when I was with you, I determined to know nothing except Jesus and him crucified. Okay. In the end of the book, beginning of chapter 15, he says, I came, here's the most important things that I'm going to give you, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay. And so as a believer, as you think about developing your own theology, your own theology of ministry, the most important component, the most important piece of our understanding of theology has to be rooted, has to begin with the resurrection of Jesus. Because that's where all of our hope is, is found. You see, the resurrection means that Jesus' death on the cross was sufficient and that all the sins of humanity can be forgiven. The resurrection is what drives me in my pastoral and my, my teaching ministry. But it also drives me as my work as a, as a chaplain. I've been able to observe that, that many people in a, in a health crisis, they begin to weigh this important matter when they receive a new diagnosis or they become hospitalized for something. 
And I've had the opportunity to encounter lung patients, people with HIV and other kind of terminal illnesses that have asked me, can God forgive me because of the choices that I've made, because of the, the things that I have, because of the things that I have done. And the resurrection is the answer. The resurrection says, yes, God can forgive you no matter what you've done, even though you've thrown your life away and, you know, you've contracted, you know, uh, this disease or you've smoked and you've got cancer and it's ravaged your body. You've not taken care of yourself. God can forgive you. And that forgiveness is available because of the resurrection. Okay, it's available through Jesus. You see, I believe that the resurrection means that sin and death has been defeated once or all, once and for all. Hebrews reminds us that the death is an appointment that every single one of us will keep. Okay? If, if, if I don't say anything else, if I'm not right about anything else, I'm right about this, none of us are getting out of here alive. Okay? Alright? If, if nothing else I ever say is right, that will be right. None of us are getting out of here alive. Okay, we're all going to die. Okay, now then, sickness, death, disease, all those things without Jesus seem to have the final say, right? But because of the power of the resurrection, because of the, the empty tomb, Sin, disease, sickness, death don't have the final word. Jesus has the final word. Okay, how many times have I shared from 1 Corinthians 15, the end of it? How many funerals I've done? I think I'm on 10 funerals this year that I've done already. Okay, 10. And in all of them, I've gone to 1 Corinthians 15. Because you, Jesus, Paul's talking about the power of the resurrection. He says, because of Jesus, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? You got nothing. I sat with a family on Thursday. Met the man the day before. He'd been an intravenous, intravenous drug user. He'd contracted um, hep C. He had stage four cancer, lung cancer. Couldn't speak very much. I was supposed to go out and administer communion to him the next day. He died during the night. I didn't get a chance to do that. But I got to go out and sit with his family. His mom, his two brothers, a sister, and a neighbor. And we're all, this, is the, this is the family I asked you to pray about. Okay? This is the people I should be praying for because the older brother who's kind of in charge, he knew the prognosis. He knew that it was bad and he didn't want to tell his mom because he didn't think she could handle it. And his sisters didn't really know anything either. But 21 days before, he had been diagnosed with this terminal illness. He had been given nine to ten months. A hospice nurse went in and said, I think you're looking at days, maybe less than a week. And so he didn't know how to tell his family. And so... We got to wonder if this happens and they don't know. Is there going to be anger? Is there going to be guilt? You know, did they, you know, did they not have the time to say what needed to be said? You know, to make amends and all of that thing. And so that's what I was having you pray about. 
Okay, because I knew all of that could get in the way of some, some other important stuff. But we went in and they were gracious and they had, God had clued them in, fortunately, through the night. And they were, there was a lot of love in the room. And that's the text that I went to, that 1 Corinthians text. And it was that, that God has won. We have victory because of Jesus, because of the power that's, that's in, the, in the resurrection. Because of the cross and the empty tomb, Jesus has that, that, that final word. So that's the first thing. Here's the second thing. I'm almost done, I promise. The first thing, or the next thing, is an incarnational presence. And we see this manifest itself, maybe most powerfully in Mark chapter 5. And again, that's a, you know, that's a big phrase that you would never use outside of here. But an incarnational presence, to me, is where the rubber hits the road. Okay? John 1.1, what does it say? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Word meaning Jesus, okay? God was with Jesus at the beginning. You drop down 13 verses later, and it says, The Word became what? Flesh, and lived among us. We have seen His glory, the glory as of a Father, Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. Okay, so... The Word, Jesus, was with God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. An incarnational presence. Do you see that? That's what that means. Jesus coming to dwell among mankind. And we see it maybe most powerfully in in Mark chapter 5. Okay? And it's this understanding of Jesus' incarnation that has been vital in, in helping me and helping others minister to people. Helping others to, to counsel, to share the gospel with them, and, and most recently to enter into a patient's room or a patient's home. What I've come to realize that as a Christian, uh, as a, a pastor, teacher, chaplain, whatever, if I fail to grasp this concept of Jesus' incarnation, then my ministry is going to have no effect. There's not going to be a whole lot of power to it. Because if I don't, and if you don't live incarnationally with people, they might not see Jesus. They might not experience Jesus. You see that? Jesus, the Son of God, entered a fallen world, took on a human body. He interacted with other humans relating to their suffering, relating to their plight. And what we see from Mark chapter 5 is He took the time to listen to them. He took the time to care for them. He took the time to love them. And He took the time to heal them. In Mark 5, in both of those stories, we see the incarnational presence of Jesus. That's why, that's why from this passage, maybe more than anything else, I have developed my own theology of of ministry. It's, It's that that helps me to do what I have to do. And so what I would encourage you to do is to develop your own theology of ministry. 
What is it that drives you? What is it that compels you to serve? What is it that that gives you the ability to go and to love a person that is unlovable? What gives you the ability to serve someone that may not deserve to be served? You know, what is it that that gives you the strength to wash dirty feet of someone? And so that's what I want to encourage you to do, to develop your own theology of of ministry. I'm particularly moved by about three verses in in that text we looked at. The first is, is verse 33, and I said I'd come back to it. The woman has taken without asking. She's been healed. Jesus is looking around, and it says the woman, with fear and trembling, no knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. The whole truth. You don't tell a 12-year-long story in just a couple of minutes. Have you ever suffered through something? And then told somebody about it? That takes a minute, doesn't it? You don't just, just, oh yeah, hey, yeah, I'm having this problem. Thanks, though, I'm good. Jesus took the time to listen to her. He allowed her to, to tell her story. One of the greatest ministries that you can give to somebody is to just listen to them. And, and mostly not talk. That's the key. I'll tell you something about that in just a second. But I also find the interaction between Jairus' people and Jesus compelling. Notice what the people say. They say, your daughter is dead. Jesus says, don't be afraid, only believe. Okay? Don't be afraid, only, only believe. As I said a second ago, one of the best gifts that we can give to people is listening. And it is an invaluable commodity because our world lives in fast forward. Everything is instant. Immediately that we find in Mark really applies well to today. Okay, we have everything right here, just about that we need, right? Anything we need, we can get just about right here. Medication, we can get it through this. Food, we can get it through this. Stuff you absolutely don't need, you can go on Amazon and you can find it. And they will bring it to your door. Okay? And I'm, I order Amazon. I order on Amazon all the time. So I know. I get I ordered something this week. But to sit down with somebody and just say, tell me your story. And then give them the time. Man, that's a powerful thing. To be able to, to, to sit and, and to listen to people. A lot of times after I've counseled with somebody, man, they'll thank me. Boy, you have no idea what you did. And I didn't do a thing. All I did was manage to not talk. They did the work. Okay? Just, just listening. And they think, man, that was the great. What did, how did you do that? I just shut up. That's it. That's the secret. Just Listen. You know, and there's, you know, there's active listening. There's things you can, you have to learn how to listen because it's not an easy thing. Okay. You have to learn how to actively listen. 
But to just give someone the gift of time and say, you tell me what's going on with you and not give advice, not condemn, not judge, which that's what a lot of people want to do. And that's where we mess this whole thing up. But just listen. Such a powerful gift to, uh, to give somebody. Uh, in my work as a chaplain, you know, that is the gift that most other disciplines don't have the time to give due to the nature of their work. Um, you know, I have no power to heal, <laughs> much less resurrect the dead. But I believe that everyone deserves love and compassion. Everyone deserves to be listened to at the end of, li- at the end of their life. And of course, I'm in that unique position now to be able to do some of that. But you have that opportunity as well. But it means you have to set aside time. Okay? And it might mean that you have to go first. You have to be vulnerable first in order for somebody to be vulnerable with you. Okay? I do these things because of what Jesus did for me. He didn't condemn me at my worst. He didn't judge me when I deserved it. Instead, he sat, he listened, and he offered compassion, forgiveness, and love in the midst of my sin. That's why my theology of ministry derives itself from Mark chapter 5. And it says to me, sit, listen, and love.